0: We're finishing up, as Pastor Alan mentioned, uh, mentioned just a few minutes ago, that we're, we've been on this journey together uh, from the very beginning of Lent for the last, like, six weeks, and we've been focusing on Tom Bernlin's book about courage, and so we've been uh, using that as kind of a teaching point. And so we began this journey, actually, down out in the uh, in the desert um, with Jesus, you know, uh, and we talked about the, the courage of Christ, but he had this conviction. We started talking about, you know, he had gone out in the wilderness uh, to get ready to prepare... For what he needed to do in this three years of ministry, which ultimately leads us to today. And so we talked about the conviction that Jesus had. We, I, I gave that story where, uh, you know, Jesus was there at the synagogue and he, and he healed a woman who had actually who was struggling with um, osteoporosis and she was hunched over. And, and, but he healed her on the Sabbath. So um, he had the conviction to do it anyway. And even though he knew that he was going to take, well, um, take some heat for it. Uh, we talked about the, the candor of Jesus when he had to, uh, uh, basically, a come to Jesus talk with Simon when the woman had come in and anointed Jesus' feet with her, with her tears and anointed him and, and dried his feet with, um, with her hair. And so Simon said, you know, if, if he really was a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is she. And so Jesus had this really candid conversation with him. So we talked a bit about candor. We talked a little bit about the conviction. We talked a bit about the hope that Jesus had. And the hope that the four friends that brought this paralyzed man knocked a hole in the roof, hoisted him down, and so we talked a little bit about that as well. So today I want to talk to you all a little bit about the assurance of jesus Christ um, and so I, I thought it was really interesting i was um um, I just came back from the Holy Land. I just want you to know, I went with 24 and I came back with 24, which is always a beautiful thing. And uh, things are a little different in the last three years. It's been three years since I've been to the Holy Land because of the COVID thing and so forth. So uh, we actually got to Jerusalem. I was there actually about a week and a half ago. And uh, here's another example of how they things, how things are doing. So before, when you wanted to walk the Via Dolorosa or you wanted to walk through the streets of Jerusalem, you had to walk. But now, let me show you this first picture. Now you can actually catch a golf cart ride is Isn't that amazing? There's my friend, Sylvia and Bill uh, they, you know, it's just amazing. So you could act, you, you didn't know that the villages has actually arrived in Jerusalem. It's just amazing. <laughs> uh, and so if you want to take, if you don't want to take a golf cart, you can also take a uh, camel. So there's pastor Harold. And so, uh, we call that my, our guide, uh, Mike Todd calls that bus 44. So you can take a camel. So we've been on this journey and we had a great journey in and uh, in the holy land fabulous trip. I was listening, um, and I I shared with the Sunrise Service Group this morning, of course, last night. I was listening to Jimmy Kimmel. Um, Actually, I was listening to uh, the radio, and they were talking about Jimmy Kimmel doing, you know, he does late-night TV. And he was talking about interviewing children during the Easter time. And that was actually very funny because this particular segment was talking about the Easter Bunny. And so they, you know, they went out on the streets and started interviewing these children. They said, and so one of the questions they were asking about the Easter Bunny said, so how do you think that the Easter Bunny actually gets from place to place to place in all these thousands and thousands of stops he has just like Santa Claus? How does the Easter Bunny actually pull it off? And one child said, well, he hitches a ride with the uh, Tooth Fairy. And I thought that was actually pretty good. And so you got the Tooth Fairy, you got the Easter Bunny. And then and then Jimmy Kimmel asked us one so, kid, so where is actually the Easter buddy actually live? And he says, Mexico. And I thought that was actually interesting. I didn't know. <laughs> the Easter buddy lived. <laughs> that just cracked me up. So yeah. Uh, and so then, you know, that got me inquisitive. So I did a little detective work. And I actually found that this is evidently at Easter time, Jimmy Kimmel actually does this kind of a normal routine. And so I went back to 2017. And I saw a video that Jimmy Kimmel actually his, his, I guess one of his producers went to the streets of Hollywood and um, went to the Hollywood Boulevard and and saw children walking along during the Easter season, the Easter week and they asked them the question specifically, it wasn't about the Easter bunny, it was specifically what do you really know about the Easter story that's connected to Jesus Christ? So the producer had asked the question, these kids and said, so how, is, how does Jesus fit into the Easter story? And so what was very interesting is that some of the children um had absolutely no clue completely clueless. They were like studying, uh, had no idea what the person, the producer was even asking them, the idea about connecting the Easter story of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Zero. And then there were other kids that was also very evident. And I saw one little girl they asked and she knew, she was amazing. She blew me away. She knew the whole story and she could, She told the whole story in 30 seconds. It was amazing. From A to Z she knew all the details. She got it completely right. And I was that. I said, wow, that's, that's amazing. And then they asked one little boy, this has really got my attention, I think he was about four or five. So what does Jesus have to do with the Easter story? This is on a Hollywood Boulevard. And this is what the little boy see, said. She said. He said, well, this is what he did. That's all he said. This is what he did. He put his head down like this. Right? Wow. Amazing. The Easter story. I, I was thinking about that this week and this idea of uh, the proof that we have in the Easter story. Um, the time I sermon today is prank, proof, or proven. I, I was thinking once again to reflecting upon this 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 story, um, this Easter story, and and I was evidently I, I made me think about the story. Actually, I told the story about almost ten years ago. I think it was Easter, and it was about the story about um, Phineas. Phineas was um it was his, this goes back to 1820, so um, um, Phineas was born in 1810, and um, his family his grandfather taylor had deeded him a piece of property it was called ivy island it's in northern connecticut and so um they kept once again his grandfather and his father continued to tell phineas how important it was that his you know he was so blessed to be able to have this amazing opportunity he's you know not many children have owned their own island and so his grandfather had deeded him this island ivy island so they continued to kind of build this up in Phineas's life, and over the next 10 years they continued to remind him that he was going to be this, he's the heir of this beautiful island. And so um, one day they said, you know, Phineas, we're going to take you to go see your island. And so Phineas actually, um, it was like three or four days out, and he kept exciting, he says, when do we get to go? When do we get to go? When do we get to go? And they finally says, today's the day. So they load him up in their wagon, and they headed across Connecticut, and they began to make their way towards Ivy Island. And so, of course, just like a typical kid, you would think, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And so he finally go, okay, it's just around the corner, just over the hill. This is in 1820. He was only 10 years old. So they go around the hill, and he finally jumps out the wagon. He says, go ahead, run. Go, go see it for yourself. So he went around the, uh, uh, over the hill, and he looked out, and lo and behold, there's Ivy and Island, but it wasn't anything that they had depicted. It was just a snake-infested marsh. And then the grandfather, Taylor, and the father just laughed at Phineas because it was all just a big prank. Now, here's the rest of the story. Most of us don't know who Phineas is, but we also know him as, well, he was actually named after his grandfather, Taylor, and you know him as P.T., as in P.T. Barnum, as in P.T. Barnum and Bailey Circus. By the way, PT, you know, as I thought this was interesting when I looked up the quote about his life in Google. This is what they said: He will be remembered remembered for promoting celebrated hoaxes. PT Barnum. You know what's interesting that that particular story shaped his life for the rest of his life. He was a laughing stock. And the rest of his life, it was all about a hoax. It was always about a prank. It was always about the circus. It was all about pulling one over on somebody else. And by the way, P.T. Barnum was also known as the quote, there's a sucker born every minute. Right? So what's very interesting, and I thought was very powerful, is that prank had a very definitive, defining, it was a very defining moment in little P.T.'s life. So what is this all about today? Is it just a prank? Is there some sense of proof? Is this whole this whole thing that I just this thing I just read from you from the Gospel of Luke? It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four Gospels have the resurrection story. Is it proven in your heart? I had a very interesting conversation uh, with one of my dear friends. Uh, his name was Brian, and um, he was in my church and, um, and faith before I came here. And um, I, I love Brian. Um, but you know what? Brian was a cynic. I would call Brian an agnostic. He came to church every Sunday. He came with his family, his wife, and the, he had two kids. And the reason why he came to church is because his kids were a part of the youth group. But I would call him, he was agnostic, but he was seeking. And so he was always wanting to know more and he was always pushing me. And so we would go to breakfast together and we would go to the bagel place and we'd sit over bagels and a cup of coffee. And and by the way, Brian was probably one of the most intelligent people I ever met. He went to Princeton University, got his degree in literature. And um, so we would sit down and we'd have these theological conversations. And I'll never forget one day in the midst of his somewhat being being agnostic and being cynical, but he came to church every Sunday. He says, you know, Harold, this whole thing, this whole death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is what he said. You know, it's either the biggest prank in human history or it's the most, well, it's the most important point in human history. It's either a prank, it's either a hoax, or it is the truth. And there lies what we all have to take this leap of faith, don't we? I said, you're exactly right. Brian, you're exactly right. So I continued to take Brian. We would eat bagels and drink coffee, and we did this day in, about weekend, almost every Tuesday. We would get together and we would talk. And so, eventually, you know what's amazing? Brian came around. Um, here's interesting. I didn't tell you what Brian did for a living. You ready? He worked for the National Enquirer. He was one of the chief editors, made tons of money in his day, right? And he left all that, became a Christian counselor. So somewhere in the line, in the midst of, I'm just giving you an example of my friend Brian, somewhere between being someone who may be an agnostic to being questioning, to seeking more, to over bagel, over bagel, over bagel, he finally... got it. So we all have to decide, do we get it or not, right? See, so either this biggest prank, or somehow we're seeking proof, or somewhere along there are lines that this resurrection story is proven in our heart, and it's proven in our lives. It's proven through our Christian witness of somehow in the midst of the wine we were able to connect the dots and realize that Christ really is truly the son of the living God save the world that everything that happened is true I was um, I, I love this quote Um, I I, I couldn't find it while ago when I was preaching my sunrise service, but I found it here. And this quote came from the Interpreter's Bible. And I've actually read this um, several years ago, but I I love this and I keep coming back. This is in the Interpreter's Bible. It's a commentary that I use a lot of times. And, you know, when I do my detective work to do what we call exegesis. And this is what they say in the Gospel, Luke, about the resurrection story. It is no exaggeration to claim that the discovery of the empty tomb is the heart of the matter of the Christian faith. Paul's words echo somewhere on the edge of our consciousness. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. And while we are all people most to be pitied, 1 Corinthians. The New Testament never suggests that the death of Jesus would have been adequate for salvation apart from Jesus' resurrection. The two are fused to so that neither can be considered apart from the other. It's not just that someone was raised from the dead, but that God raised Jesus from the dead. Can I get him in on that? Yeah. And it is not just that someone was crucified, but that the one who was crucified had proclaimed the kingdom that, has, that his death was redemptive. The resurrection of Jesus is God's response to Jesus' death, God's va- vindication of Jesus, God's validation of Jesus is preaching of the kingdom of the poor and the outcast and the penitent. In Luke, the matter is expressed not just in twelve verses. I just read him just what well, the kids just read it just a minute. Just twelve verses in the Gospel of Luke. No, no, no. But in five words. He's not here. He's risen. He's not here. He's risen from the dead. I was watching um, 60 Minutes last Sunday night. That was very interesting. They were um, interviewing President Leszczynski um, about the Ukraine. And in the midst of the interview, um, they went out and they were interviewing people on the street. And they found one grandmother... And after they interviewed her, of course, it was being uh, translated. When they were doing the English version and kind of the dub over what was going on, they said that, well, it seems to us, this is the person that was talking, narrating the, the segment of the 60 minutes. It seems to us that this, this person has described everything in one word that's happening in Ukraine. Here was the word, Horror. That's a heavy word, isn't it? Horror. Could that, that, and she said she, she thought she was gonna die. She was hiding in her basement and she was a fear for her grandchildren, but she survived and she described it in one word as horror. And then I started thinking, you know, but in the midst of listening to that part of the segment, then I, when you listen to the President Leszczynski, um, I thought there was an interesting enlightenment in that even in the midst of the horror, there was hope. He's holding out a hope, hope for his life, hope for his family, for his children, but for the children and the people of Ukraine. And then I started thinking about, you know, if you think about that, that is the Easter story, isn't it? We, we have gone, by the way, as they interpret the Bible, it says you can't, you can't go once again, as I shared, you can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. The two are fused together. Don't miss the detail on that. We, you know, there are lots of people here today, and I'm so grateful, so grateful that you all are here today. But we are reminded that you can't get to the Easter without going through Good Friday. And as the Interpreter of the Bible says, you, you got you got the horror of Good Friday, but you got the hope of all of this. This is the good news for all of us today. To move us from hope for the horror to hope. And to me, you know, I thought about as I was thinking about my preparing my sermon today, it, re, it really kind of throws me back because I was, you know, once again, I was just in the Holy Land a couple of weeks ago, and some of you were on the trip with me, and it was just a glorious time. And, and so when I started thinking about today, and I just thought, and here's the, let me just throw this, this expression at you because I got this on the trip. Um, today is really is kind of a breathtaking day. Uh, to me to be able to be honored to be able to stand here before you and stand in the midst of this garden, it really is breathtaking it 's it's, it's it's almost overwhelming to think about the power of today the, the the horror of Good Friday, but the hope that we find in the gift of the resurrection it 's breathtaking. I, I, I took a few pictures um, on, on this, and let me just share a couple of thoughts because see um, I, I got I got to the garden tomb about a week and a half ago and the garden tomb is a really important place. Matter of fact, our our guide, Mike DeHaan, describes this place. I never heard it described any other way and I think it's really important. He says, you know, Harold, when you stand at the garden tomb in Jerusalem, you're standing at the center of the center of the world. Think about that. Because he said, you know, Harold, this is, and he points to the tomb. He says, you know, this is where it is. This is where it's all happening. This is where it happened. You're, you're standing in the center of the center of the world, and so um, I, I I did something I never had done before because normally when you go to the garden tomb, where well, you have we have a Holy Communion, and I usually give like a little homily about ten or twelve minutes. I know that's very difficult for you all to think that I can only preach for ten or twelve <laughs> minutes, but y'all stay with me, okay? I'm watching the clock, it's 9.45, but who's watching? <laughs> Some of you are, I see, okay. So I, I pull up a chair, and so there's 23 of us there, and, and I said, you know, um, I'd like to do something different today. I'd like to know, where was it in the midst of the last week and a half that we spent together, where did you feel as if that Christ spoke the clearest to you? where in that moment where did you find as if that your maybe your breath was taken away i mean you just like you're like speechless the and and you know what's very interesting um some people said matter of fact can you show a couple of slides let me just put these up real quick and here's a picture of the sunset in the mediterranean sea um there's can you go to the next slide let me just show you a couple things and this is what this is my friend Ada, and this is a Bedouin boy. And she said one of the most important places where the breath take was um, the valley of shadow death. And there's this little boy up there who, by the way, uh, what he they had a beautiful little conversation, and he sold her that little turban thing on the top of her head. And he says, "Can I have your pin?" And so she, so you see the pin on him. She actually gave him the pin. It's just a cheap pin, but he was so over the moon about that pin, right? And so there was that moment. Can you show the next slide? And so this is the Church of Nativity. And she said, you know, Harold, when I was in the Church of Nativity, I felt like I was floating and I took this picture of this little boy lighting the candle in the church in Nativity. Can you show the next slide? And so here's a picture of Harold being, some people said it was a baptismal site. I put a picture of myself up there because I want to tell you, I, you know when you come out of the Jordan River and you've been baptized, you don't look real good. So I put myself up there. Um, and can you go to the next slide? And so, and then here's the church of, this is Caiaphas' house. So let me tell you a little story about Caiaphas' house. Some people said, you know, it could be different places. You know what's amazing to me is that um, almost every single person sit was a different place, which reminds me of the power of the Holy Spirit, because you can read the scripture and, you know, you, and you read something maybe 20 years ago and you read the same piece of scripture after you put it into context of your life. Maybe you've gone through some kind of crisis or calamity or something. Maybe you've lost a spouse or you lost a child or a grandchild. And then all of a sudden you read maybe the Easter story and all of a sudden it has new meaning. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So when I pulled up my chair and said, hey, listen, where did you have your breath taken away? It's interesting. I almost got 23 different answers to the question. So we get to the Caiaphas' house, and so, um, which is very powerful because Caiaphas' house is where Jesus is on trial. You know, he's on the trumped up charges. And the, of course, the Jewish officials didn't have the power to actually kill him. So they had to go through Pilate and had to go to the Roman authorities to be, actually have the power to kill him. But they had him trumped up on these charges. So he shows up at Caiaphas' house, which is the high priest, and which is very interesting, when you go to Caiaphas' house, you go to the bottom of the Caiaphas' house, and there's a pit. There's a cistern there. Matter of fact, I think we got a picture of that. And so this is, uh, this is where Jesus would have been hoisted down into this pit. And, and the tradition that we normally have, I usually read a little piece of scripture from the book of Psalms. Can you imagine Jesus being down, lowered in the pit? It would have been completely dark, and he knows he's going to be crucified tomorrow. By the way, you can't get to Easter without going through Good Friday. There's the horror, but there is a hope. The reason why we're here today is because we have hope. Can I be amen on that? So here's the interesting thing. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I'm overwhelmed with trouble, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like the one without strength. I am set apart from the dead like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from the care, your care. You have put me in the lowest pit in the darkest depth. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Can you imagine Jesus thinking and praying this prayer in the pit at Caiaphas' house? It's kind of horrific, isn't it? Okay, so we go to Caiaphas' house and we're sitting out there. And so, can you put that slide back up real quick? Let me just explain some, put it in context. So, um, we're standing there at Caiaphas' house. And see, you see the on the left hand side, there's like a little garden area. You see the green? Okay, so we're seeing there's a little rail there. By the way, there's a, there are steps right next to that, the, where that garden is. They are literally the steps in which Jesus would have made and walk from across the, um, the Kidron Valley. He would have taken that journey from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would have walked up exact those steps, and it would have walked right by Caiaphas's house. Because they're still there 2,000 years later. You can look at them. And, and so we're looking down, and he says, my friend Mike, who's my guide, he says, Harold, you see that tree down at the bottom of the down there? And I said, yeah, I see that tree. He said, you see the olive tree? You count two or three of them. And I said, yeah. He says, you know, I, I planted that tree. He said, I've actually planted that tree for one of my friends who had lost a loved one or something. He says, I did it, you know, as kind of an honor to them. And he says, you know what, Harold? Next year when you come back, I'm gonna plant a, plant a tree for you. Aww. Yeah. So one of my friends, Barb, was listening to that conversation. And then she, all of a sudden, she came out and she has tears streaming down her cheeks. And she's literally almost out of breath. I said, Barb, what's wrong? What's going on? And then she says, you know, Harold, and she's talking to me and Mike, she says, when you start talking about the tree, she says, you know, it just brought back this flood of memories. I said, what memories? And she said, well, in the 1990s, my sister was murdered. And my mother and father made arrangements for a tree to be planted somewhere around here. So when you started talking about planted tree, it reminded me of the horror of my sister being murdered. Wow. My friend Barb gave a, um, uh, when we go on this trip, we always, have, I give people the opportunity to be able to give a devotion on the bus. And, and one day, <clears throat> before I had that conversation, she had come and she says, you know what? I said, does anybody have a devotion day? <clears throat> and she said, I've got one. She said, I got it from a friend last night. And I said, well, we'd love to hear that, Barb. Please tell us your devotion. And this is the devotion. There was a moment when Moses had the nerve or the audacity to ask God what his name was. God was gracious enough to answer. And the name he gave is recorded in the original Hebrew. Every <sighs> time we, well, uh, well, arbitrary added an A and E. Therefore, it becomes Yahweh, presumably because we have a preference for vowels. But scholars and rabbis have noted that the original letters in Hebrew represent breathing sounds or aspiration consonants. When pronounced without intervening vowels, it actually sounds like breathing. <sighs> So a baby first cry, his, first, his or her first breath speaks the name of God. Our last breath speaks the name of God. A deep sigh calls his name or a groan or a gas that is too heavy for mere words. Even an atheist or agnostic like my friend Brian, would speak his name, unaware that their very breath is giving a constant acknowledgement to God. Likewise, a person leaves this earth with with their last breath when God's name is no longer filling their lungs. So when I can't utter anything else, is my cry calling out his name? Being alive means I speak his name constantly. So it is hard... it, it is, 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 it, so it, it, is it even heard that the loudest when I'm the quietest, I'm, and saddest when we breathe heavy sighs and joy, our lungs feel almost like they are burst In fear, we hold our breath. And we have to be told to breathe slowly to help us calm down. When we are about to do something hard, we take a deep breath and find our courage. When I think about it, breathing is giving me, well, giving him praise, even in the hardest moments. So this is the, so this, this is so beautiful, and it fills me with emotion every time I cast uh, the thought, God chose to give himself a name that, uh, that, he, that we can't help but speak every moment we're alive. All of us, always, everywhere, waking, sleeping, breathing, with the name of God in our lungs and on our lips.. <gasps> Hmm. Took courage for Jesus to get us here today. A lot of courage. I, I love this particular piece of scripture. It comes from the Gospel of Luke. I, I, it's one of my favorite pieces of scripture. It's the fifty-first verse, seventh chapter. It, it, it's where it says that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. Well, you all got up this morning early. And we set our face to come to church because we believe this is real. By the way, uh, what's interesting uh, in that interview with President Lazinski, I thought this is one, one of the greatest quotes in that interview. This is what he said at the very end. He says, You know, I want you to know, this is not a movie, this is real. So um, we all got up this morning, some of us got early. I got up at five, did my little run, got here, got all my, got my mojo, got it all ready for the sunrise service. I mean, yeah, and so, you know, what's interesting, you go to the gospel, Luke, Jesus, it, it, it says, it doesn't say anywhere else, but it says here in Luke, and Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. It, what, I think it's very interesting when you talk about the courage and the assurance that Jesus gives us today. Now, I, I looked at, there's 60, I looked up 61 versions, 61 versions And when it came close to the time for his ascension, he gathered up his courage and steeled himself to the journey to Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He made up his mind to set out his way to go to Jerusalem. He settled himself fully to go to Jerusalem. He made up his mind to go to Jerusalem. He moved steadily onward towards Jerusalem with an iron will. Jesus resolutely set his sights on Jerusalem. He turned toward Jerusalem and was sure that nothing would stop him from going. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Yeah. Took courage to do that. Why do you do that? He did it for you and for me. He did it for the world. He did it for all those little children on Hollywood Boulevard when they asked the question, Hey, you know... What's the connection between Easter and Jesus? What's the answer? I I was running, I'll close with this little thought. I was running down um, in Fort Lauderdale. Um, Did I tell you my running story in Fort Lauderdale? Did I tell you this? Okay, because I can't, I've already preached a sermon. This is the third time. I can't remember what I said, okay? So, so I was running in Fort Lauderdale with my, my daughter. She lives down there. And um, I thought this is really interesting. Um, There's this big placard, society, got to a park. And, you know, you go to the parks nowadays and you, they talk about the spring event, right? And so this is in South Florida. And so when I got, I was running along and I read the sign. And it was talking about this upcoming spring event, you know. And so then it described what the things that are going to be happening for this spring event at this particular part. And this is what it said. You ready? Egg hunt. They took the Easter out of the egg hunt. Did you get that? They took the Easter So they're expecting the children to come and they're going to hunt eggs, but they're not hunting Easter eggs. They're just going to hunt eggs. Is there something that I'm missing? Is there something that we're missing? I mean, for some, I suppose this whole death and resurrection thing, maybe it is just a big prank for some people. Maybe they're looking for some kind of proof. Or maybe as we continue to draw near and take this leap of faith, it's been proven over and over again that Jesus Christ is the real deal. I sat up on the top of the precipice, which is where we come full circle the sermon series. You know, Jesus got clarity when he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights and then he went down to his, no prophet's gonna be accepted in his own town, town. And he opened up the scroll and he read, and he says, I've come to be able to once again release the captives and set the oppressed free. And Jesus spent the next three years doing that. And when he said that and they said, this has been fulfilled in your midst, they took him up to the top of the cliff and they were gonna kill him. So I sat on top of that cliff about two weeks ago and this is what I said to my folk. I said, you know, there was a time in which um, Nazareth, which is just on over the hill, we overlooked and saw Nazareth. And there was a time in which um, Philip came to Nathaniel and says, I found the Lord. And Nathaniel says, what good can, I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, who is he? Jesus from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, here's, here's a thought, right? Jesus cannot be whittled down to, well, just an egg hunt. Jesus can't be whittled down to just anything. Jesus can't be whittled down to just something. Jesus is everything. Amen.